You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. Thank you, everyone, for showing up on a Wednesday night. I feel like this is the the home crew of my family, so I love it. Uh, Turn in your Bible, if you have one with you, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 46 to 55. This is a, a really special portion of Scripture that we're going to look at, and uh, it always worries me when a preacher talks about using a text as their launching point, but this is going to be the launching point <laughs> tonight, so we'll see how it goes, and uh, I, do my, I will do my best, I promise, uh, to, uh, to keep things in context here. Um, I'm really glad. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe there was a reason. I don't know why uh, Pastor Stewart decided to start uh, th- you know, things off, really talking about this idea of judging other people. Um, but it's really uh, kind of interesting that he did uh, because he, he's, he's sort of getting to at least one part of, of really the conclusion of our message tonight. And as I was looking for something to, to really start us off with as we get going, I was looking for a... A, a story. I'll, I'll show my hand here a little bit. I, most preachers do this, but I, I try to start off every sermon with either a story, a question, or a problem uh, to get you going. And I decided on a, a problem this time around, which I'm going to get to, but first I'm going to tell you a story uh, that I thought of after Pastor Stewart said that, because I think it's very important. Now, I, I, I'm not going to over-dramatize this, okay, because it really wasn't like some, some huge thing. But the other day, you know, he's talking about social media. Sure enough, I got on social media, and I was scrolling through um, Facebook at my own risk, and I came across a, a, something that said that a former, you know, somebody I used to go to high school with had gotten uh, married. And if you know anything about this guy, just suffice it to say, super like goofy guy. So I'm just going to be honest with you. I was curious. I was like, well, who married him? <laughs> and um, I'm sorry, but, but I, I did, right? I, I, I did this. And so, um, and I have memories of, you know, this was a while ago, but I have memories of who he was and the, the things he did and looking at him, you know, he, he kind of looks like his personality, if that makes sense. And so I, um, I thought, well, not much has changed, right? And so I, I went looking through the profile and I was Facebook stalking. Okay, can we just, I was Facebook stalking and uh, saw his, his wife and I, I, I'm just saying, I was like, oh, this kind of makes sense. Um, you know, and I was putting puzzle pieces. I'm just, can I just be real? Like I was putting puzzle pieces together. Like, oh, this kind of makes sense. And I was like, you know, we, we tend, especially in our over like politicized culture, like, like why is it, and don't, don't tell me you don't do this because I know you do. Why is it that when you first see somebody new or, or we look at somebody in that kind of context, the first thing we start thinking about is, oh, I wonder how liberal they are. Now, if I'm the only one in the world who does that, then fine. But I have the feeling, judging by some of your faces, that I'm not the only person in the world who does that, who looks at people and says, oh, I wonder how liberal they are. And, you know, um, you mentioning that tonight, really, that made a lot of sense to me, that that is so super-duper wrong, what I did. As it turned out, as I was looking, scrolling down this Facebook profile at the person that he married, just because I wanted to check it out, I was shocked to find that she agrees with me on just about everything that you, she was, she, in fact, in fact, she was being more bold about sharing what she believed in public on Facebook than I was. 
And so we ought to treat people, we're talking about God is, is merciful tonight. And I'm just going to give you the spoiler alert, and then I guess I'm just going to try to work backwards and build my case here. But I found out a lot about mercy in this study of Scripture um, over the past few days than, than I ever knew about it. Um, I, I, I have a new perspective on, on what mercy is. And spoiler alert, mercy is not only something that God has shown us, but it is something that we, through his peop- as his people, are supposed to show to others. And so often, our first reflex is to judge others for some arbitrary standard that is probably something American, <laughs> you know, in the way that we're thinking, instead of the way that Jesus thought about people. When other people judged first, Jesus said, hang on a minute, we can righteously judge, but, wait, but, but it's really the first thing that you should be doing with somebody, instead of thinking about compassion, or instead of thinking about how you can reach them, is really the first thing that we should be doing, judging them. So anyway, that's food for thought. We're, we're going to get back there. So now I will uh, begin the way I had originally intended to. Um, we, we heard a couple of really great messages the past couple Wednesdays. We heard, first of all, about how God is supreme. I mean, it's kind of like saying, uh, it's a little different, but kind of like saying that God is sovereign, right? God is in control of everything. God is the, the highest good. God is the greatest good. God is the greatest possible being. There is nothing greater. God, as you read the Bible, as Pastor Stewart says often, and it's totally true, God is for God. There, there is nothing greater than God to which God could appeal. He is the final authority. It, the buck stops with him. And yet, and yet, we constantly find ourselves slapping God in the face. Is that not true? Don't we find ourselves constantly falling into some of the same sins over and over again, having some of the same bad attitudes over and over again? We're disobedient. We're oftentimes disloyal to this God who is supreme. And as the supreme ruler, by the way, he is the righteous judge. God is the righteous judge. God is the only person with the true authority and therefore ability to bring judgment and to right evil and to right the wrong. And what we all deserve as people who have sinned against him, as people who have been disobedient, as people who have been disloyal, we deserve judgment, right? That's, that's really the one hand of this issue. Well, then last week, though, Matt spoke of God's grace, and I think a lot of us think in terms of when we think of grace and mercy, we think of those as being kind of the same thing. And don't get me wrong, they are, they are similar. You know, he started out with uh, Ephesians 2 last week, and I thought he was just going to steal my sermon. I wasn't sure what on earth I was going to actually uh, teach about tonight. But as I studied into it, I started to see that there is actually this, this marvelous tension in between these two things, that God is supreme and God is gracious. There's a, there's a tension there because when God is gracious, he, he extends his favor to us, right? He is, I like to say, he's the God of second chances. I mean, he takes our punishment upon himself despite our disloyalty. And so why is that? What is that thing that's nestled in the middle between God's supremacy and God's grace? If I may say it this way, I think God's mercy has a little bit of middle child syndrome. You know what I'm talking about? We talk a lot about the sovereignty of God, 
about the goodness and greatness of God, the supremacy of God. We talk a lot about the grace of God. We immediately think about Calvary and how Jesus sent his son to die for us and to redeem us. So we, we think about the grace of God, but, but mercy kind of sits there in the middle as, as the middle child who we don't often think about, and yet it is the puzzle piece that connects it all together. It is the bridge. And in fact, mercy is so important to God that he decided that through mercy is how we were supposed to interact with the world around. So I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. We haven't even read the text yet. So let's do that real quick and move through some of these pieces. Why does he love the unlovable, cure the uncurable, and redeem the unredeemable. That's what we're going to talk about. So Luke chapter 1, verse number 46. This is Mary's song. This is often called the Magnificat, okay, where it basically is the Latin for magnify. She says this, and Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord. This is after she finds out, right, that she is being blessed with a son, the savior of the world. Uh, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my savior, For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath opened his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And as we look at this marvelous passage of scripture, of course, we know what this is. We know this is Mary's, Mary's moment of rejoicing because she found out that she is going to give birth to the savior of the world. She is with child. And you have to understand a little bit of the context here. Let me give you this brief background. We'll pray and then dive into the rest of our time tonight. Um, you have to remember, right, at this point, there were the what some call the 400 silent years before John the Baptist showed back up on the scene. Israel had not heard anything from Yahweh for this around 400-year period of time. There's a lot of history. It's called the Second Temple Jewish period. It's also called the Intertestamental period for fairly obvious reasons. Um, and, And there's this period of time where there was basically silence out of Israel. Nothing, nothing had happened. And before that, what had happened was catastrophic, right? If you remember, we taught on Nehemiah a a little bit during our lessons from Legend series, and that is getting at pretty much, you know, real close to the end of this idea of the um, Old Testament Israel as we think of them. And remember, it ended in in tragedy. It it ends with God basically saying, look, like, like this is the end of the road for you guys. things Things are not good. Things are not good. You're disobedient no matter how many times I have rescued you. I've rescued you over and over and over again, and you keep on betraying, 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 betraying. Things are not good. It is going to take a miracle to rescue you. And, and he, you know, it's not good. You've read the end of your Old Testament. It's not good. And then there's this silent period. Nothing happens at all. And so this is Mary rejoicing to find out that this Savior, think about four Hundred years, four hundred years of time. That that is a long time.
time, if you sit down and think about it for just a minute. That is a really long time. And nothing had come out of Israel. And then here Mary hears from an angel, right, that she is going to be giving birth to the Messiah, to the Savior of the world. And she is ecstatic. And she talks about a few different things there uh, during this. She talks about the mercies of God. She's reflecting upon the goodness and mercy of God um, towards her, right, her as a person. She's saying, God has been so merciful, like, to, to, for me, this undeserving person, to be the person who brings into the world the very Savior, the very Messiah that we've been waiting for, this is incredible news. God has been so good to me, so she reflects inwardly on that. Then she also reflects about Israel, right? She talks about he has, he has hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. You know what she's saying there? He didn't forget about us. He didn't forget about us. He's, he's still coming. He's still coming. He is still coming. The Savior is on his way. So she's rejoicing because he's been so good to Israel. And then I think this is interesting as well. She specifically says, and it sounds a little repetitive, but she says, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. She talks about Abraham and his seed. Now, what is she thinking in her mind, right? I like to put myself back there, right? She's, she's probably thinking in her mind, just sort of exaggerating the point about, about Israel. But if you think about what Paul wrote in Galatians, I love this. When I saw this, I was just like, oh man, this is cool. Because Mary is reflecting not only on Israel, but specifically the descendants of Abraham. And if you look at the book of Galatians, right, Galatians, uh, I'm just going to read a small excerpt, uh, Galatians 3, 13 to 14, it says this, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, I'm not going to get all into your... You know, did, did, you know, did the Jews become the, I'm not going to get into all the, the super deep theology there, that stuff, we don't have time. But I think it's just really, really cool that, that Mary is so ecstatic about the mercies of God, about the seed of Abraham. And according to Paul, you are essentially the spiritual seed of Abraham through the work on the cross of Jesus Christ if you have been redeemed and saved by him. Now, I looked for a definition of the word mercy and the Lexham Survey of Theology says it like this. I like this. It says, the mercy of God describes his focused disposition of compassionate forgiveness toward his people, especially in light of their distressful and dire circumstances. And I, I love that definition because as you, as you look at different instances of, of mercy, really throughout the scriptures, really throughout the New Testament especially, you have really these two ideas. Uh, on one hand, you have the idea of forgiveness. Mercy uh, entails the forgiveness of God to his people. And also this idea of, of pity, of, of, of pity, of, of shame, of, of feeling sorry for those who are hurting, those who are uh, poor in this world, those who are spiritually sick and in need of a savior. And I think that definition captures, uh, captures it all. Now, I want to go on also, before we move into the meat here, uh, a little bit of a, of a nerd spasm. You should be really be worried about this because I started writing down in my notes when I'm going to go on a nerd spasm. I literally write nerd spasm. So I'm sorry. Here we go. Um, we have, as Christians, and I promise I'm going to try to make all this make sense, but, but we have, as Christians, what is called a, a, 
revelational epistemology. A revelational epistemology. Now, the word epistemology is just basically how you know things, okay? How you come to know things is what that word means. It's a big, fancy word. I think somebody had to get paid a lot of money to come up with that word, okay? And revelational, right, simply just means what, when something is revealed, okay? So as, as simple as this sounds, right, when we want to know something about God, where do we have to go to get that information? We go, we go here, right? We go here. Not just because it's, it's some random book, but because it is the very revealed word of God about God. Now, many of us are going to take that for granted, right? Because we've grown up in the church, right? We've been a Christian for as long as we can remember. Grandma was a Christian. Grandma before that was a Christian, etc. And we've all, you know, the, the Bible is something that's been very much taken, taken for granted, really. Um, but the only way that we know what we know about God is, is, through this, is through this book. You know, there's a lot of people who believe about God who don't, that don't have a, a book that has been historically proven to be accurate, okay? Most other world religions don't have anything like this. If they do, there are numerous problems with it, reading through it. Some people believe in some mysterious, you know, oh, there was a God who, who sort of created the world in the beginning, but then he doesn't have any interaction with the world now. That's what's called deism, right? And you don't know, you, you couldn't know anything about that God. I actually wrote a paper one time refuting that idea because there are these people who want to tell, tell you about how they're, they're, they're called pandeists, right? How they believe that, that, that all this stuff about how God created and then you don't have any evidence after that of God's working in the world. He just created years ago. He set the time clock ticking and here we go. But you couldn't know anything about that God. They want to say, oh, he's this, he's that, he's this, he's that. But how do you know anything about that God? Because he didn't tell you anything about himself, right? We have a God who inspired Scripture. We have a revelational epistemology. We know things through revelation. So we go to this book to find out things about our great God. So when we want to know about God and his, his, his supremacy, his mercy, his grace, we go here. All I'm saying is don't take it for granted. How many of us take this book for granted every day? That's the practical point. Let, let's not take it for granted. Let's go back to it often. Let's study it. Let's mine for its truths. No matter how familiar it is to us, let's remember that we don't know everything that there is to know. So I think that every Christian should really marvel at the character of God because of five key qualities of his mercy. So I, I, I stole a page out of Matt's book and made a, an acronym out of the word mercy that we're going to talk through uh, underneath of my, my main thoughts here. So first we have the description of God's mercy in the Bible. So as we alluded to already, right, the Bible is where we derive our theology. It is that vehicle through which Yahweh, the God of the Bible, describes himself to his people. So we must pay attention. And as we pay attention, we find that the writers of scripture all throughout have been giving us a window into the mercy of God, okay? So first, the M in mercy, right? His mercies are many. His mercies are many, right? Uh, Lamentations 3, 23, or excuse me, 22 to 23 says this, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. His mercy is, is new. We're not relying on old mercies, right? What we have is not old news, right? No matter how long ago you first met God, 
right? If, 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 your, if your relationship with him is stale, he didn't go anywhere, right? He's been there the whole time. Those mercies are new. He provides us with tender mercies every single day. Psalm 145, 9 says this, the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are all over his works. Whatever God is doing, because God is doing it for you, it is a part of his mercy. Do you get that? Like God doesn't have to do anything for any one of us. God doesn't need us to feel complete. He simply wants, he simply wants to show mercy to you and to me. He does it out of his goodness, out of his grace, and out of his love. Isaiah 63, 7 says this, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. You see, it's according to the mercies of God. It's because God is merciful that God has chosen a people. It's because he's merciful that he's not only chosen a people, but he's also put up with a people. It's not, it's because he's merciful that he's chosen them and put up with them and then went so far as to redeem them when they were unworthy, unlovable, and unredeemable. It is all because of his mercy. Yes, God shows us grace, but God is supreme. He doesn't have to show us grace, but because he is merciful, he chooses to show us grace. He has, he has pity on us, to use the one definition of it, right? He has pity on us, and he is forgiving towards us. This is how he sees you and me, and thus he extends his grace to us. So his mercies are many. They are abundant. Look around, right? Look at this great church we have. Look at, look, look at this book that we have. This book is a result of his tender mercies. Look at the friends as you look around this room that you have. They are a result of the tender mercies of God. Look at the job that you have that supports your family. It is a result of the mercies of God. Look at the fact that you are even alive. The Bible says it is because of his mercies that we are not consumed. You are here. You are in the building tonight because of his mercies. It's all because of his mercies. It's incredible. So that's the M. Then we'll talk about the E, right? So his mercies are not only many, but they're, they're exclusive. They're exclusive. Um, there is, is, you know, theological talk of what might be called a, a common grace. The Bible says the, the rain pours on the just and on the unjust. So there are, there are special graces arguably reserved for people who are redeemed and, and who have placed their trust and their loyalty to him. But there are common graces that many of us experience. But the mercies of God, the mercies of God, as we look all through the examples that we have throughout the Bible, they were exclusive to certain people. And specifically, it was people that kept their loyalty in check to Yahweh. Listen to this. So Noah Noah's a really good example, right? God creates the world. By the way, that was the mercy of God. He didn't have to do that. God, God creates the world, places Adam and Eve in the world, and what happens? Well, we all know the story, right? The world falls into utter corruption to the point we get to Genesis 6. We're not even six chapters into the Bible, and God already has to destroy the place. Six chapters in, and the whole thing gets wiped out. He said, I mean, all their thoughts were only evil continually. Even the animals of the earth had to be wiped out. The flying things, the, like, the land animals, everything had to be wiped out and destroyed because it had gotten so bad. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a, the Bible says, a righteous man and perfect in his 
generations, right? He was an upstanding person. He was loyal to God. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that exclusive mercy was given to Noah as he carried the rest of the world forward, uh, right? Same thing could be said about Abraham, right? So, so we, we serve the God of second chances. There was a second chance. And what happens is the world again gets so corrupt that basically everyone gets together and says, well, what we're going to do is we're going to do God on our terms. We're going to build, they built a tower. It's called a ziggurat. Um, they built a tower that would be a place where essentially they could summon the gods down to them. And there's a whole lot we could talk about there. We're not going to. But they, they basically summoned the, the, the gods, the evil spirits to worship them there. And God said, uh, yeah, that's not going to work. So he scatters the languages, right? Scatters the people all across the earth. He creates for his people supernaturally of Abraham, right? So Sarah, right? They couldn't, have, they were too old. They couldn't have a baby, Right? Abraham laughs. God shows up to Abraham. Abraham laughs and says, what, uh, whoa, like, you know how old we are, right? Like, have you checked your, uh, you know, and, and, and yet God supernaturally creates for himself a people through Abraham and Sarah out of his mercy, out of his exclusive mercy. I mean, the examples could go on, right? Joseph, uh, Joseph and all his brothers, like all of uh, you guys know the story. His mercy was reserved in Joseph and through Joseph, he brought restoration to the land and to the people, etc., etc. All throughout the Bible, those who were loyal to Yahweh were the benefactors of his exclusive mercies. That line was kept. Then his mercies are also righteous. His mercies are righteous. Uh, a lot of times we, we, we play like the fair game with God. Like, like was that, was that, is that really fair that, um, you know, whatever circumstance it might be, was it really fair that so-and-so got ahead in their job and, and I'm still sitting back here? You know, was it really fair that uh, other, some people in the world never even get to, the chance to hear about God seemingly just because of the circumstances of their, of their birth? We start asking these questions. The thing about it is that whatever God does is righteous. And his mercies are righteous too. Romans 9, 13 to 15 says this, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. When God does mercy exclusively, he also does it righteously. Whatever God does is righteous in his mercies. Let's look secondly at the distribution of God's mercy throughout history. So that was the M, many, the E, exclusive, the R, righteous. Now in the distribution of God's mercy, I want to say also that it has been consistent. It has been, it's been consistent. We talked a little bit about this already, about basically from the very beginning, his mercies have been seen in creation. Adam through Christ. It's really, really incredible. If you look at your Bible and you read and you see like we are the most undeserving of people to have been granted this wonderful mercy, every single thing that we have, every good gift from above. And, 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 and if you just look at the millennia through which God has focused his, his love and his compassion onto his people, 
and even brought it all the way through Christ to us. So Nehemiah, I mentioned Nehemiah a little bit earlier. He is, he's reflecting um, during a, a tumultuous time. He is reflecting on the history of his people and where God had brought them to this point as they are rebuilding the wall and, and rebuilding Jerusalem. He says this in, in Nehemiah 9 and then verses 30 and 31. Yet many years didst thou forbear them and testified against them by thy spirit in thy prophets. Yet would they not give ear. Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst utterly not consume them, nor forsake them. For thou art a gracious and merciful God. He has kept his promises. He never left these people by themselves. He never left them wandering. I mean, they, they, there was always a way, I wrote this down, in the midst of the transgression of God's people. He always made a way. By the way, Romans 5.8, but God commendeth his love toward us. In that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were not looking for him. No man seeks after the Lord. He came looking for us. And as we look back through the history of time, again, we saw that Noah continued the story where Adam left off. Adam failed and left off, and Noah continued that story. Uh, where Noah left off, Abraham continued the story, right? Joseph then continued the story for Abraham. Moses continued the story for Joseph. God's mercy, right? It just keeps piling on and piling on and piling on with every new generation. Joshua continued the story for Moses, right? Then you had the judges and, and, and the righteous kings of Israel continued the story for, for Joshua. And then eventually Ezra and Nehemiah continued the story for those judges and for those kings. But then remember, then remember, the story ended at the end of the Old Testament looking pretty gloom. And then God went silent, like we talked about in the beginning. He went completely silent. And finally, he sent Jesus. And Jesus came for all of mankind. Now there is no more a difference between the Jew and the Gentile, right? There is no more difference. There is no male, no female. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is, excuse me, there is no black, no white. There's none of that. In Jesus Christ, there is simply being in Christ. That is the message, right? That, that is what it all finally culminates to, the mercies of God made human in Jesus. He showed up as the, as the culmination of his mercy. So that is, the, that is the C, really, the consistency of his mercy. And then the why, the why is, is you, is you. This is the most amazing part to me because it is the extension of grace, through his mercy and love to you. You realize you and me are undeserving, just as undeserving, if not more, than many of those great figures in Scripture. We are just as, if not more, undeserving than the children of Israel, his chosen people. And yet, he has sent Jesus to redeem you and me. He made a way for us, despite our, as I mentioned, disloyalty, despite our disobedience. God decided to impute his righteousness on you in virtue of Jesus' sacrifice because of his loving kindness, his forgiveness, and his tender mercies. You know, I, I just, 
I hope and pray that we would just never take for granted what a wonderful gift we've been given. Um, life sometimes just seems so mundane, doesn't it? You, you, you wake up, you go to work every day. You know, the, it really burns you out, right? You're, you're, you're lucky if you get a 30-minute lunch break in a lot of places. You go, you work for the man, and you get home at 6 o'clock. You're so exhausted, you can barely even look at your family. And then you have to go to bed and do it all over again. And, and many times we get so caught up in that and burnt out by life that we forget to just take inventory of what we really do have and what we've really been given. To take inventory of the fact that we get to support our families, right? That we get to come home to a home, right? And, and, and when we get to that home, just trying to make this really practical for you. When, when we get home, do we view our spouses? Do we view our children? Do we view our home? Do we view those things we get to do as those tender mercies of God? Or is it just another chore? And I'm preaching to myself here because a lot of times I have the wrong, I have the wrong view on this. I have the wrong view on this. These things are mercies given to us by God out of his love that he didn't have to give to us. We should, this is why the psalmist says, right, his mercies, they are new. The Lamentations, uh, Jeremiah wrote the Lamentations, right? So um, his mercies are new every Every morning, he's given them to you. Finally, tonight, I want to talk about the disposition, the disposition of God's mercy in his people. Now, this is really where it comes down to brass tacks. This is the, this is the thing that I didn't understand. Cue the nerd spasm, all right? Let me give you this real quick. So, so scholars talk about what they call the communicable attributes of God, Right, so you have those attributes of God which are not communicable, and then you have those which are communicable. So obviously, um, God's eternality, his divine um, aseity is a technical word that simply just talks about the fact that God is self-existent. He doesn't need anything to be self-existent. He had no beginning. He will have no end. God is, just is, right? God God is. Um, and so there are many things that God cannot give to us. He cannot give us the attribute of being omniscient. Because if he could, then there would be two omniscient things, two all-powerful things, right? And, and two couldn't be that. There can only be one. So God can't give, those, give us those things. But there are things, communicable things, that God does give to us. He communicates them to us and through us. And this is what scholars call the communicable attributes of God. And this, fortunately, the mercy of God, believe it or not, is considered to be one of those communicable attributes. God gives us the ability to show others mercy, to give others mercy like he has given to us. As a matter of fact, man, this is part of the whole point. When Jesus comes, what he does is he gives people a new way to be human. Think about that. A new, we, don't, we, don't do, we, don't, we don't do life the way the rest of the world does life. Why do people look at Christian communities now, especially today, the world we live in today, and, and, and they think bad things of us. They, 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 they denigrate us. Ultimately, it's because we're so different than they are, right? We, we, or at least we're supposed to be, right? And, and it, it's really an indictment on the church when we see certain groups and, and people of the world who are more loving and, and, and more giving, right, and have better attitudes or more pleasant to be around than people who come to church. Uh, I mean, I, 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 some of the nastiest people I've ever met in my life were church people, unfortunately. And it, it ought not 
It ought not be that way. That is not what Jesus intended. Jesus intended for his followers to do life completely differently than the rest of the world. I'm gonna read this to you from the Lexham Survey of Theology. Because mercy is a communicable attribute of God, the Bible also declares that God's people should have the same disposition toward others and that his people should act on their behalf. In the New Testament, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for their lack of mercy, and he accentuates the importance of mercy coupled with action through his teaching. Jesus not only teaches about God's mercy, he embodies it. In his role as the son of David, he demonstrates that he is the physical revelation of God's mercy. And, and in that, and as we, as the Apostle Paul says, we are in Christ, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. We are declared righteous by the Father, but he is all the time transforming us to be conformed to the image of his son. And what that looks like is showing mercy unto others, as we opened up with. Not, not first thinking in terms of judging somebody because they're not like me, but first extending forgiveness, extending pity. You know, can I, I mean, can I just be real practical? Like, like when you're driving and, and, and somebody just like ran a red light or whatever, like is your first instinct to beep your horn and, and, and go all Jersey on them? Or, 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 or is it to forgive them? When, they, when, they, when, they, when a car comes speeding up behind you, is your first instinct, oh, I bet they're just being total jerks? Or is it, oh, something might be wrong. I should probably get out of the way. Again, these are just real practical things, but, but we are supposed to look at other humans, other images of God, and think mercifully toward them because he thought mercifully towards us. Are, are, are we, am, am I looking at somebody to the best of my ability with the same lens that God is? Am I, am, am I doing that? That example that I shared in the beginning of looking, looking at that couple on social media, I promise you, I was not looking at those people the way that God looked at those people, whether or not they are Christians. By the way, I think they are, which makes it even worse for my, for my indictment, right? But, 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 but whether or not they were Christians, whether or not they had the same political views as me, whether or not they were conservative, all things which turned out to be true from the very looks of it, that had nothing to do with, that, with, with how God looks at them. Now, granted, right, God looks upon his children differently than he looks upon the world. He, he punishes sin, of course. I'm not denying that. But, but when God looks at people, he has mercy on them. He has pity towards them. In fact, he would forgive them if they would just show their loyalty to him. At least that's my view. You understand? So, so we, we are to give mercy because he gave that mercy unto us. I'll give you a couple verses. Luke 6, 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good. And lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great. And ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Right, Micah 6, 8, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. You know, as, as, as loyal believers of Jesus, we we bear his 
name. We are God's representatives before the nations of the world, before the people of the world. And it is our responsibility to show them mercy as he has shown us mercy. And I just never realized, even before this study, just being transparent with you, how big of a deal it was to extend mercy to other people. I really didn't realize how much that was part of God's plan for how his people would interact with the world and in the world was to show mercy upon them, right? And I, 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 just, I, just, I just pray after tonight, if nothing else, if you've tuned out most of what I said, I, I just hope that you never think of mercy as having middle child syndrome again to the supremacy of God and the grace of God. They are both two amazing things, but in between them is that is that mercy. You know, we've all heard God's justice would be getting what you deserve. God's mercy is you not getting what you deserve and his grace is getting that which you don't deserve. I still think that is a great way of putting it, but don't neglect that mercy of God. I just want to leave you with this and then we are done. In God's mercy, he found us, but then in his grace, he rescued us. In his mercy, he forgave us. He forgave us uh, but in his grace, he gave us eternal life. In his mercy, he is patient and long-suffering. And in his grace, he is pleased with us. In God's mercy, he removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. But in his grace, it's as though they never existed. In his mercy, he gave us life and breath. And in his grace, he conquered death forever. Let's pray. And Pastor Stuart, you can come. Dear Heavenly Father, I love you. Thank you so much for your wonderful um, mercy for your wonderful grace. Uh, Lord, we just thank you that you've extended that to us. And, and may the lesson, the takeaway, the, the, the big idea for tonight be in all of our minds and hearts that we need to start showing others and extending to others that mercy and that forgiveness. And Lord, even that, that pity, that same that you have showed us, may our first interactions with others be like that, right? May we view them as you view them be they other brothers and sisters or be those who are lost and in need of you. May we see them first through your eyes, Lord, instead of through the eyes that we often do. I love you, Lord. I thank you for our time together. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.